There's something that happens to a person when he or she becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something that happens when a heart is regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we are made justified before the Lord, things start to churn inside of us. Instantaneously, we are made a new creation, but we are also being made into a new creation. Both of those things are true. And so the Bible says things like, uh, we have salvation if we have faith in Jesus. We have currently, we, we currently retain eternal life. And at the same time, the Bible says that eternal life is something that we will attain. It is a salvation is something that we are currently working out with fear and trembling, that kind of language. God starts working in us and starts changing things in us. And one of the first things that you tend to experience, I think, as a believer, a new believer, is your desires start to change. The things that you used to love that are just of the flesh or of the world, you, you find yourself desiring less and less and less over time. The things that the Lord wants, the things that the Lord desires, we start desiring more and more and more. I've said this before, but I started noticing this as a a newer believer, as my little stack of DVDs. When you you liked movies and you wanted to watch them again, you used to buy the DVD, right? And I know there's things before that. I'm dating myself a little bit. But uh, the DVDs, I kind of had a rack that grew over time. And as I became a believer and the Lord was working on me, I'd find myself going back through that stack of DVDs of like movies that I used to think were funny or entertaining and finally going, yeesh, I can't believe I thought that was entertaining. Throwing that out and the next one and the next one. I started thinking I should give those to somebody else. I don't want to waste them. And then I thought, wait, wait, wait. If I, if I, don't, if I feel weird about them, I, don't, I wouldn't want anyone else to have them. And because your life changes, your desires change, the things that entertained you and that you found enjoyment in begin to change. It's supposed to work that way. This is a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. But you may have experienced a little error that tends to accompany that growth, a little bit like a parasite on a host. I want to explain this to you. If you haven't experienced this before, especially as a younger believer, I want to warn you of something. There seems to be a little bit of a lie a deception that the enemy likes to attach to a general good desire that we need to watch out for. You see, God wants for you to desire the fruit that comes from faithfulness, from holiness, the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the world and of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit. But it is possible that while you're desiring good things for God, you may be desiring something the Lord doesn't want for you. In other words, you may be desiring a particular kind of fruit that the Lord does not desire for you. So, so imagine for a second, let me give you some examples of what I mean. Let's say that you want to have a solid and strong, thriving ministry. As a pastor, I struggled with this. I, I still, this is something I have to beat back all the time. I want the Lord to be honored in whatever ministry efforts and endeavors He puts in front of me. But it's very easy for me to look at my other brothers and sisters in the faith who have been a part of ministries that have flourished and have been very fruitful. I think of a great brother like uh, Pastor John MacArthur, coming to the end of his ministry days right now, many decades of faithful ministry, and how the Lord has honored that, that service and that work by tons of fruit. 
And the fruit of John MacArthur's ministry, for example, has been colleges and seminaries started and many missionaries funded around the world and conferences that encourage and grow pastors and hundreds of books and and thousands of sermons and lectures that have encouraged people along the way. That's the fruit of much of his ministry. And I find myself wanting that and desiring that, to grow a big church with lots of ministries and lots of things. But the truth is, perhaps that's not what the fruit of faithful ministry will look like for me in Utah and here in this day. And I have to be satisfied by that. For my sisters in Christ, perhaps perhaps one sister raises four kids, pours into them, shares the truth of the gospel with them, prays over them, constantly gives them all the good that she can in a desire that they come, they grow up to come to know the Lord. And they do. By God's good grace, four kids grow up to become believers and, and, and two become pastors and, and two go become missionaries. And she gets to share and celebrate in that fruit with her Bible study, her small group that she gathers with on Wednesday mornings. But another sister pours into her children Prays over her children, shares the gospel with her children, brings those prayer concerns of the salvation of her kids to others, and she does all the same energies poured in, but the fruit that she'll experience may look different. Perhaps those four children, maybe even similarly, become believers, but one goes to be a banker, one goes to become a lawyer, one goes to become a politician, and is clearly not a believer then. I'm just kidding. But, but they don't have the cred, the stats that might make her at the Bible study looked like her children grew up to this. And the other, you see what I'm saying? Ought she be satisfied with the fruit of her labors? The results will look different than her sisters. Maybe the Lord will get glory through her life in a different way than the other. Brother, you, you may know of another uh, Christian man that you follow online or you've read his books, who maybe he started a business that grew into two or three, and now he's a multi-multi-millionaire. And he's able to generate the funds to employ hundreds of believers and start companies that have the values that honor Christ. And he's able to be a great light and a witness in a dark uh, place of commerce because of his industry. He's even able to fund ministry and missions and millions of dollars going to help plant churches and all these wonderful endeavors. And you're thinking, I want to be faithful so that I can do those same things. And you pour into your life and into your business. But the Lord has different fruit in mind. Your faithfulness might bear different results. Let's make it something even simpler. Uh, We have, a, I think, a disproportionate number of evangelists in our church for our church's size to many others that I've known. People who go on the street, talk to random strangers very regularly about the gospel, proclaim the gospel to broken, lost, hurting people all the time. You may know there are some evangelists, those who literally just, that's what they do for a living. They, they, they just, they, they've raised support as a missionary, and they go out on the streets, and they share the gospel with strangers. And they can give you conversion story after conversion story after conversion story. There's not a week that goes by that a person sitting next to them on an airplane comes to saving faith in Christ. It's like they get plane tickets just so they can fly and share the gospel. It's the only purpose. Where are you going to? I'm going to share the gospel on the way to L.A. and back. And you, you, you know what I'm talking about. Those people who have fruitful ministries, and you're like, man, I want my ministry to be like that. And you go out on the street and you share the gospel with a thousand people in three years. And no one confesses their sin, repents of it, and turns in faith to Jesus. Zero. 
Perhaps that's because the fruit of your faithfulness is determined by God to be a different kind of fruit than the fruit of all the numbers of conversions for that work. And so here's what I'm saying. These are good desires. They're good. But would you be satisfied with different fruit than what you've experienced in the other? The fruit of your faith and his faithfulness will almost certainly be different than the others around you. Would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with just being faithful and leaving the fruitfulness up to God? Would you be okay with just, in the hot, beating sun, laboring morning till night, sun up till sundown, putting seeds in the ground and never being around to see them come to blossom? We're getting to the end of the part of our story, making our way through John the story that focuses on John the Baptist. We've been a handful of weeks now, as we've been in John, walking through the life of John the Baptist. And it's always been pointing towards an end. It's always been pointing towards a culmination where the whole story shifts gears and its focus goes right to Jesus. It's always supposed to have done this. Since the sixth sixth verse of the entire book, it says this. But Jesus said of John the Baptist in Luke 7, he said, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. Whew. That's a, that's a heavy reference <laughs> from the perfect Son of God to say that about a man. But it occurred to me this last week as I was not wanting to rush past the life of John the Baptist into the next stuff. Okay, let's get, let's get to the rest of the story. No, just be patient. Let's just make our way through. Lord, you determined that we'd spend some time talking about John because you wrote it in the book and you kept repeating stories about him. So I want to milk this a little bit for him and for our good. It it occurred to me this last week, John did not grow a big church. He didn't grow a thriving business. He didn't grow a big family. For all we know, he never got married or had any children at all. He died, family line snuffed out. He had no brothers. Or sisters. John was simply faithful. He was just faithful. He had one job. We talked about this last week. One job John had to reveal the Messiah. That's why he came to baptize. Baptize. Why? To show the people the Messiah. That's why. That's why you exist. And so this is what John was to do. He was to live, grow up, proclaim the Messiah is him when he saw him, and then go die. And that's exactly what he does. He fulfilled what God commanded. It may not always seem like what we are doing is producing the kind of fruit that we have expected. He was a prophet. He was a greater prophet than Moses, and the nation didn't follow him. He was a greater prophet than Joshua, and he didn't defeat scores of enemies and put to flight armies. He was a greater prophet than David. He didn't slay any giants or wear a crown. He was just faithful. You and I must enjoy whatever fruit we get. We must not covet the fruit that belongs to another. We must desire faithfulness, a faithful life, and leave the fruit bearing to the Lord. Because faithfulness is 
its own reward. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd ask you to go to John chapter 1. I'm going to read through verses 35 through 42. This is the section we're covering today. I'll pray and we'll go back through. I'm intentionally not going to be putting up the slides uh, for a little bit here. I want you guys to kind of get more used to opening your Bibles and bringing them with you. If you have them at home, bring them with you. If you got on your phone, if that's how you do it, that's fine. I'd love for you to, you to see the words yourself uh, on the page in relationship to the other things around it. I'd love for that to encourage future Bible reading, and so let's, let's do that. I'm going to read our passage, pray and dive back in. Let's do it. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God! The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray. Lord, as we read this passage this morning, I pray that it would draw a greater love from our hearts for you. It would help us desire to pursue you more fully. It would help us to acknowledge the, the principle that faithfulness is its own reward. So we ask you to do that with this text. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Going back to verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, just to remember where we are here in setting this up, John is at the Jordan River. One day before this, John saw Jesus coming to him, it said. He was on his way down to him. I suspect it might have been at the moment of his baptism. The story is written kind of reverse order. We covered that mostly last week. But last week, when John saw Jesus come towards him, John says, behold, the Lamb of God, but he adds more, who takes away the sin of the world. He develops that a little bit more there. Here's the second day, or the next day now, and he says this in the hearing of who knows how many, but the two disciples who are standing right next to him. This time he sees Jesus, but he's not coming to him. He's walking by. Apparently Jesus is at least still in the vicinity of the ministry of John the Baptist. He lingers around for another day. He doesn't go right home after baptism. He sticks around for another day. He's walking by. John says, behold, the Lamb of God, and two disciples next to him hear it. Last week, we unpacked a bit more the significance of that language, Jesus being the Lamb of God. Behold, meaning, look, look at him, the Lamb of God. Verse 37 says, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. That's all there is to it. I love when you get these really simple, quick little verses like this that didn't, they don't talk through the, deliber the deliberation, the conversation, the, oh, should, should, should we? Do you want us to? You know, I don't know what went down at the moment in reality. I, I, I know that the Holy Spirit-inspired retelling of this event is simple. They heard him say, the Lamb of God, they, boom, they just go. I like to imagine and kind of picture them working a little bit as ushers, helping people get into the water, probably standing knee-deep, John standing waist-deep, that's how I picture it at least, and uh, they're doing this baptism out there, baptism of repentance for the people who are coming. 
And they, they, they see John point and says, behold, the Lamb of God. And they just get out of the water and go. And the crowd's left there watching. That's how I picture it. Maybe it looked something like that. And why did they follow Jesus? Because of what John just said. That's why. As great as John is, as worthy as he is to be a rabbi under whom they'd be considered disciples, a teacher that they'd have been learning from, they, they aligned their life to submit to and follow this John character in his ministry. And regardless of how good and amazing and wonderful this John was, there's someone better. And John is not the Lamb of God. You see, John cannot remove sins. It's interesting that John is baptizing. He's, he's dealing with people's sins. That's what he's doing, you remember? He came to proclaim the kingdom and repentance. It's a baptism of repentance. We dealt with that last week. And even though that's literally what he's doing, come here to repent. Come here so that your sins can be dealt with. Come here to do this. No amount of water can remove a person's sins, can take away the sin of the world. These disciples needed the sin remover. They needed the Savior. And at this point, that's the only thing they know about Him. That's the Lamb of God, and He takes away sins. That's where I'm going. Being a disciple of Christ starts just like this. We simply follow Him. We realize our sins, and we go. It's really... It's just that simple. These men barely know him. In fact, what, what do they know about him? What, what do they know? We can't be certain. We only know what we've got here in front of us and the other texts. But no amount of their having talked about him can really get the full knowledge that they'll eventually attain. They, they might not even know his name. Is that interesting? His name, his name isn't referenced uh, out loud in uh, quotation at this point. There is Jesus, he doesn't say that. Behold the Lamb of God. They might not know his name. They probably don't know the sound of his voice because he hasn't said anything yet. They probably don't know how he smells. They probably don't know what his favorite foods are. They might not, know, not even know where he lives. And they certainly don't know where he's going. They're about to ask the question. They don't even know where he's headed. But they know what they need to know. Someone they trusted, John the Baptist, told them, he can take away sins. And that was enough for them. If you're new to this whole Christian thing and what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ and to follow Him, or maybe you might say, I've been a believer for a while, but I'm starting to feel compelled by God to begin taking my faith seriously. I don't believe I've done that before like I ought. You need to be reminded by this. You need Jesus. It's just that simple. That's what you need. You need that. You need that more than all the other theology classes and Bible studies and prayer times and all those things. You, you simply and starting, you just need to, to get up and go follow him. That's what you need. He'll take care of the rest. Just start. If you're not a believer today, you need to know, and we say this every time that we gather together to worship the Lord, we acknowledge that we believe there are always going to be people around us who are not yet believers. And if that's you today, you need to know it's very simple. You're a sinner. And Jesus can deal with those sins. God offers forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ. And what you need to do, you need to follow 
him. It's made clear in the text. He'll eventually go to the cross. He'll be murdered. He'll be brutalized and killed. For what reason? He was, he was perfect. He didn't commit any crimes. He's the only one who's ever lived who's never done anything wrong. He died not for his sins, but for the sins of all of those who will ever believe in him. You need to put your faith in Jesus to have forgiveness of sins. Believe in him and be saved. And it's just that simple. Follow Jesus. Get up and go. Of course you don't know everything. Of course you don't have it all sorted out yet. Well, what will that mean for this? What, how will that go down? Well, well, what about that one doctrine? What about, oh, look, look, you can for the rest of your lifetime, and you probably will invest that energy into learning more and more about him. There, there are depths that you and I could never plumb. But you know enough. You know that you're a sinner. He is the sin remover. So follow him. You know, I think that there are a good number of people who in their life, they consider Jesus. They consider him. They think about him. They think about some of his teachings. They've read some of the stuff uh, that he's said, perhaps. They've celebrated Christmas. They've been uh, on an Easter egg hunt. They have talked with some people about this Jesus that they love, and they got some touch points, some, some factoids. They have the Wikipedia article figured out about Jesus. First century guy, people say he's a son of God, he said some stuff in four gospels, he died apparently, and they say he rose. You can consider Jesus without following him. I want you to think about the number of people in this crowd. It's just amazing to think about this, and I don't want to push too much here because this isn't the point of this text, but we see two people get up and follow Jesus. I think we can give a pass to John. His job was to follow exactly what God said by staying in that water. <laughs> but there are two guys there and then a crowd. And how many follow Jesus? A pair. And one of the reasons I think this actually is something that's in this text we're supposed to see is because in the Gospel of John, especially the first half of the Gospel according to John here that we're reading through, there's an enormous emphasis on people not following Jesus. The, 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 the Jews and the faithful who you'd think should follow Jesus don't. Repeatedly, Jesus does amazing things, and the people don't follow him anyway. He feeds 5,000, 5,000, and at the end, there's like nobody left but his 12 disciples. That's it. This theme is repeated, how many times people keep walking by. I want to talk to you kids for a second, younger people, especially younger believers for a second. Listen up to this, especially if you grew up in a Christian home, are growing up in that, growing up in a church. It can be very easy just to be associated with other Christians. Mom and dad are believers, maybe other family members, uh, definitely other brothers and sisters at Christ I get to meet, you know, or, or at, the, at the church, okay? So you're around it all the time. And this is a great and glorious blessing. Yes, it is. But it is possible for you to grow up in a church and just, have to, just to have considered Christ and never followed him. Oh, I know things about Jesus. I tried that Jesus thing. People say that sometimes. There are many people who grow up in churches, heard lots of things about Jesus, can, can, can kind of spar with the best of the theologians out there, but they've never followed him. They never got up and went. Oh, yeah, I was there on the river when Jesus was there. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Well, did, did you follow him? Oh, I tried that whole Jesus thing. I stood right there on the river. I saw him get baptized. This John guy says, uh, behold the Lamb of God. I was right there for all of it. Well, that's great, but what did you do? I went home. You need to listen carefully to this. 
Don't just consider him. Don't just get him in your mind. Follow him. Go after him. Pursue him. The Bible tells us you can only pursue one thing at a time. You can either pursue Christ and the things that honor him, or you can pursue the world and the things that dishonor him. Those are your options. If you're pursuing the world while you occasionally ruminate on the person of Christ or his teaching, you'll be just like the hordes of people in Jesus' day who did the same thing. You'll be like those in the massive crowds that never followed him. It is good to consider Jesus. It is good to be present for and you know, read through and imagine those things. But you have to take the leap. There has to be a point in your life that you say, I'm going to leave whatever was here and I'm following him. And that's what makes a person a disciple. And we want that for you. This whole story is about to switch focus from John to Jesus, exactly as it was said it was supposed to. We're literally six verses in to, to chapter one. It says this, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So right out of the bat, we know we're going to hear about this John guy, and we're going to see illustrated how he makes nothing of himself and makes much of the light, the real light. That's, and that's exactly what we've been reading. And there's three stories in a row about this. The first one, the Pharisees come, who are you? I'm not the Christ. The second one, he says, that's the Christ. And this one, he sends his disciples to go. That's what you see. And now John's gone. We'll only see him a little bit one more time in this account. But before we leave him in the dust, I do want you to consider for a moment what this event must have been like from John's perspective. 100% of the disciples standing next to him leave, abandon him to follow someone greater. I do think he probably had more disciples we'll see later in other texts. But here, if you read it carefully, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and that's how many go. So the only ones we know of here follow in, go to follow Christ. Here's what I mean to say. The picture here is that of a public religious figure whose closest followers abandon him for someone greater. And I want to ask you something real quick, just to put yourself in that, in that moment. Could your ego handle that? Just imagine being the kind of person, you, you, you've amassed a little bit of a following. Maybe, maybe just you've got a small group of people around you, and you've clearly risen to the top in your small group as kind of the, the wisest counselor, the one who knows the word, the, 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 the answer lady, the, 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 the brother who's real, real good at bringing in the, the wisdom no one noticed in the text or something like that. Maybe you're the one everybody goes to with their problems. Maybe that's, that's what it is. Maybe you have a vocational or non-vocational kind of ministry, a little bit more formal, and you've kind of amassed people around you, and they trust what you're doing in ministry and life, and pastors run into this all the time, and it's kind of nice feeling these people around you like, wow, look at, look at what the Lord's blessed me to be able to do out here. Could your ego handle you saying, there's Jesus, and everybody leaves? Because if it couldn't, it's a problem. My kids and I are still reading through uh, 1 Samuel in our Bible reading time at night, and that's in the life of King Saul. We're still in the life of King Saul right now. And there's a, a kind of amazing thing that happens with this character. King Saul, first king of Israel, uh, Samuel, first finds this guy when he's uh, trying to hunt down some missing donkeys for his dad. And when he, fi- when he and Samuel, uh, Saul and Samuel meet each other, Samuel tells this Saul, I've been waiting for you. There's something important the Lord wants you to do. And Saul is like, me? 
I'm from this little tribe, the least important, the most diminutive group. Surely, surely in my humble estate, there's nothing you could need from me. This is how, it, this is how Saul comes onto the scene. He's tall, but that's all he's got going for him. Later, as they go to coronate him, God, God shows that Samuel picked the right guy. He shows us by the casting of lots, a whole ceremony where all of Israel gets together, and he slowly whittles down from all 12 tribes down to one, down to a family, down to a, and brings it down to Saul, son of Kish, is to be the king of Israel. And do you remember that just when they get to that fanfare, and ready, drums roll, and the king will be, and they, they go, to, go to announce them, Saul, son of Kish, they look at where's... Where's Saul? He does not come marching down the middle of the aisle, chest puffed out, somber expression. Remember where he is? In the rear with the gear, hiding in the luggage, it says. You see this kind of, if we were to, if we were to moralize it and say humility, I think it's probably more likely the other side of it, timidity. He's probably timid. But just a few chapters later, do you know what happens to Saul? His arrogance gets so out of control, so out of whack, that when God clearly begins supernaturally blessing David, who has slain 10,000, hey Saul, you're still, you're still slain thousands, but come on, literally what God's working through David, tens of thousands, Saul ends up getting so furious, he tries to kill David multiple occasions, mobilizes his armies, not to kill off his national enemies, but to do a manhunt for the most loyal servant in all of Israel because of his jealousy and rage. You guys know the story if you've read through the Old Testament. How does that happen? A guy go from timid hiding under bags to the audacity of trying to hunt down the Lord's anointed out of jealousy. Guys, you and I, you and I have that kind of sinfulness in us. And so we see John operating contrary to what we so often see in the flesh. He points, behold the Lamb of God, and his disciples already know the cue. Whoosh! I pray that we can be like that. I pray we can be like John in this. I assume the best of John here. I assume that he was pleased that his disciples left him for something else, someone better. We must be more like him and want what God wants more than what our flesh wants. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians, Galatians 1.24, a quick kind of summary point of when people first hear, started hearing about his ministry, they were people who opposed him at first. Because they were like, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me that the guy who's trying to kill us is all of a sudden our best friend and we should hang out with him? I'm not falling for it. They were skeptical, understandably so. And Paul didn't go, how dare you? How dare you doubt my conversion? None of that. People are hearing this and some of them are praising God and others are being skeptical and the Lord is slowly doing a work. And this is what he says in Galatians 1.24. He says, and they glorified God because of me. What an awesome life verse. If that could be written on your tombstone. Hey, don't waste money on my tombstone and putting my name. Just put, and he, they glorified God because of me. Just put that on there. Wouldn't that be awesome if you were forgotten by all humankind in history and all that was remembered about you was that God got praise and glory by your life? To be a disciple at all is to acknowledge there's someone greater than you. 
It's to acknowledge that someone else is higher that you need to learn from, you need to listen to. Jesus himself said it like this in Luke 6. A disciple is not above his teacher. There it is. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So you and I are called to do something great that gets the attention for Jesus, then bow out, disappear, fade into the shadows. God may want to use your life in this way. Be ready for that. Verse 38 continues. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? If you're like me, you probably try to picture what this looked like. You know, they're walking down a path. How far, how far behind? You know, have you ever felt like someone's watching you or following you and no one's back there and then you get a little farther, someone really far back and they're catching up, you know? I, I wonder, I'm, he's the perfect son of God, he has all knowledge available to him, I, I get this, but I, I wonder, is he walking and kind of looking over like, here's, here's the rustling, or here's the kind of sandals, he stops, they stop, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And he just says, what do you want? But he says, it, he says it in a way that feels very richly philosophical, doesn't it? This is, this, these are Jesus' very first words in the gospel according to John. First words, what are you seeking I actually think that's significant. First words, what are you seeking? Just as with so many of his other words in this gospel especially, there's just multiple layers to it. In other words, they could answer it at a high level, shallow, or they could answer it at a super deep level. But here's what they say. Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? Now, the word rabbi, the word literally means my great one. That's what rabbi means, my great one. Of course, it's been associated with teachers and uh, those who would be disciples under them. And so it's a a term that uh, even even in our day, they're Jewish rabbis, they're teachers. They're they're, they're similarly equivalent to Christian pastors, not precisely, but similarly. Here, it even says, uh, John gives the little Greek, just just, this this means teacher. So to call Jesus this shows that these disciples had something in mind that they needed to be taught. They knew that he had something to teach them. They don't call him dude, buddy, hey man, chief. You know, no, there's, there's, they, they call him something with respect. They don't even say sir, just kind of a random, oh, there's a kind, uh, sir, we're wondering, or neighbor, or friend. No, 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 it's rabbi. By itself, it's acknowledging something. It's not just curious curiosity. It's not, hey, we've got nothing else to do, so let's just figure out where this random stranger is going. No, they know they need to learn something from him. In this sense, then, they were kind of asking for more than one thing. Not just where are you going, but teacher, rabbi, where are you going? It's a little bit of a, we, we want to learn from you. It's kind of what's going on there. I want to pause and just help you imagine what this would be like if Jesus did this for you. If you found yourself kind of seeing Jesus, following him, like these guys were, and he were to turn and say, what are you seeking? What do you want? How would you respond? How would you answer that question? Where in your life do you need wisdom or discernment? Where are you wanting clearer guidance? I think it's actually quite common for a person to know there's something wrong, there's something missing, and I'm, even, I'm talking about believers, believers who are like, ah, 
there's something off. I'm trying to, uh, you know, thank you for all these blessings over here, Lord. I'm grateful, but I just, I know there's something I'm supposed to be correcting or adjusting or working on or dealing with. I think so often people don't actually know what they want, and it's helpful just to answer that question. And oftentimes Jesus turns to people and asks this question, what do you want? Why did you touch me? What are you seeking? He asks these kind of questions all the time. They're so deep. They're so meaningful. There's, you know it's so much more. Jesus, remember when he's walking through the crowds and, and a, a woman bumps into him, or people are bumping into him all over, and a woman reaches out and touches his, the, the, the fringe of his, his robe? And he goes, stop, stop the procession. Who touched me? Right? Remember? If Jesus were to turn to you and just say, what do you want? What are you seeking? How would you answer? Some of you may be wanting or needing healing in a relationship. Jesus, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this person in my life. I've got, I, need, I need your help here. I need this thing healed. It's not healing. It's not, nothing's working. This is what I need. Please, more than anything else, that's what's heaviest on my heart these days. Some of you may need wise counsel. You've been confronted with some challenging decisions, and your best brothers and sisters around you are saying, it's kind of a tricky one. It doesn't feel super moral. There's not, there's not a verse in the Bible that gives us exactly what to do with this one. Ah, that's a meaningful decision. I don't know. I don't know what you should do. Maybe you just need... Yes, can I, yes, Jesus, just one question. Can I ask you a question of what I should do with this thing? That, that's what I need to know today. Some of you may be grieving in some way. You need the comfort of the Lord. Sim- simply, simply put, Jesus turns and says, what do you need? And you say, a hug. Some of you may be dealing with a sin in your life. You've been battling. You know it's wrong. You've got accountability around you. You're, you're going after it. You're trying your best to fight this thing, and you keep losing over and over and over, repeatedly. Why, Lord? You know how much I hate this. You know how much this is making me miserable. Jesus says, what do you want? I want you to kill this sin. Defeat this for me, please. I would encourage you to try to regularly figure out what it is you would ask of Jesus. I think it can become not challenging for us to just let a general type of language invade our prayers, where you say lots of good and wonderful things but you're not, you're not relating with your heavenly Father and you're not crying out about specific, clear, I need help here, Lord, you know? It, it, can, become, it can become the postcard type of thing. Things are basically going well here, Lord. Thank you for the good blessings. Help me with whatever difficulties I may face. And here's the thing. You could pray that. You could just do that. But I think there's great value and benefit for you as believers to figure out the very clear and specific things so that when your brothers and sisters ask you, how can I pray for you, you don't just go, oh, gee, I haven't thought about that for a while. What can you pray, pray, pray? Uh, sick friend. You know what I'm saying? But you actually go, I, I know right now exactly what I've been praying for. I asked him this morning for this. You may want to journal this. You may want to write these things out to articulate the needs. And whenever you figure it out, whatever it is, that thing that you're asking for, just ask for it. Ask Jesus for it. John 16, 24, Jesus says, until now, you have asked me nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
There's lots that you could unpack in John 16. John 14, Jesus says something similarly. He says, whatever you ask in my name, you shall receive. He says a handful of things like this in the book of John. Just ask me. Ask me. Figure out what you need and ask the Lord for it. These disciples, they present the request. Seems simple. And Jesus answers them. Look what it says in verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. You see, not only does Jesus answer their exact question, but he picks up on the real ask. He doesn't just answer it, right? He doesn't just say, when they say, where are you staying? Down by the river. He says, come. He invites them. And he doesn't use follow me like he'll say many other times with the disciples as he's calling the first disciples. This will happen later. He does this, uh, he does this in other gospel accounts in Galilee. But here he says, come. You want to know where I'm staying? Come with me. Whatever you're seeking, that which you are seeking, you'll find when, you're fo- when you follow me. Does this not sound a little similar to Jesus' other sayings and other Gospel accounts, seek and you shall find. And so, here they go. Like I said before, you, you, may, you may struggle if I'm saying this to you. Hey, try to figure out exactly what it is you're asking the Lord for. And you're going, Rich, I, I, like, I, pen is hovering over the paper. I, I don't know. I don't know. I feel too overwhelmed. I, or maybe I'm just too, or maybe, maybe too distracted. And I just, I, I don't even know what to ask for. Okay. Even if you can't articulate that, you need to be reminded, Jesus tells us elsewhere, your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask. So if you're struggling with that level, don't go, well, what do I do next? Still, still follow Jesus. Just follow Jesus. Just submit to him. Just trail after him. Come along with him. That's what you do if you don't know what else to ask for. He already knows what you need. Follow him anyway. He does this at the 10th hour. That's, that's 4 p.m., they counted basically from dawn or 6 a.m., so 10 hours in, it be 4 p.m. So, so the day is winding down. Sun's going to be setting soon. He invites them to come and spend the evening with them. And I think at this point, they couldn't possibly have understood the blessing they were receiving. There's no way these guys really could know what they were about to get into, what they were in for. Everything in their lives was about to dramatically change for eternity. Not only throughout the rest of their lives, before eternity. And Jesus said as much in uh, Matthew 13. He says this, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. He's talking specifically to those disciples, the same people were, some of the same people that are right here in John. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and didn't see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You see what he's saying? All these faithful people who came before you, they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and they, they died before I came. They never saw me, but you've seen me. Here, these guys are in the throes of that. They're in the very beginning stages of it. They're seeing Jesus, hearing him for the very first time. They're getting to experience what so many others longed to experience. And they'll marvel repeatedly, and they'll be awestruck and amazed. It'll keep rolling out like they don't fully understand what, a, what amazement is happening right here. It's, it's unfolding for them who this Jesus is. And they will fall deeply in love with him over the next three years to the point that they will joyfully devote the remainder of their lives to make him known among the nations. And most of them will die brutal, brutal deaths 
joyfully rejoicing and singing praises and proclaiming the truth of Christ. But it all starts here. We don't know what they discussed, but it must have left an indelible impression on these men. Verses 40 and 42, in summary, and in conclusion here. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Andrew did exactly what he was taught to do by John and modeled by John. He went and shared Jesus with his brother. He goes and finds Simon. You'll notice how it says here that Andrew is referred to as Simon Peter's brother, probably because Peter was a well-known name in Christian communities by the time that John is being circulated, this gospel is being circulated. It's not surprising Andrew's referred to like that. But he says, we found the Messiah. That word Messiah, that's, that's the transliteration of the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word for anointed one. And John gives us this note that in Greek, that'd be Christos or Christ. Christ means anointed one. It's a title. By Jesus' day, the people were looking for the Messiah, the Christ. And so when Andrew goes to find Peter, he goes, you know that one? You know that Messiah, the Christ everybody's looking for? I found him. When Jesus runs into Simon, he says, you shall be called Cephas. And that's the Aramaic word for rock. Peter's the Greek word for rock. That's what's going on here. You'll notice, though, that Jesus doesn't assign any particular significance to that name here. He goes, and here's why. He says that in Matthew 16, 16, 18. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here he just says, John records it. He just says, you're going to be called Peter. Why? Because I think that he makes mention of it here, moving on, because his goal is not to tell us anything significant about Peter, but about Jesus himself. That even at the onset of their relationship, Jesus knows his disciples deeply. And this is true of all disciples, including you and me, if you're a believer today. When you first met Jesus, that was not the first time he met you. He knew you before you were born. Your name had been written in the book of life before the, the world was created. When he died on the cross, he knew your name dying for you. Not an ambiguous, amoebic kind of like a, well, maybe there will be some people someday who will appreciate me. No! He knew you. Even before Jesus met Peter, he knew exactly what Peter would become. He knew of his successes. He knew of his failures. He knew of his sins and failings. He, Jesus knew, he knew here and long before even here, that Peter would renounce him three times on the worst night of his life. And yet Jesus calls Peter and loves Peter. You need to know that even after you've been converted, even after you've come to saving faith in Christ, you are going to fail many times. And while those failings may surprise and discourage you, they are not a surprise to Jesus. He's chosen you in spite of those same very things that dishearten and demoralize you. This is the kindness of our Lord in calling us. As we conclude this text today, I just want to land on what I think is one of the chief points here. Pursue Jesus. Follow Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God, brothers and sisters. Go get up and follow Him. That's what the first disciples did. 
And we must be willing to go. Jesus tells us that following him today is a going and making disciples. He says this in the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, and I will be with you to the very end of the age, he says at the end. So you don't go away from Jesus now in order to do his work. You go, and he's with you the whole way and the whole time. And you and I are going to experience in this life some of the very best and godliest people that we know will depart from us in order to follow Christ. I can't help but think today of Luke and Ashley getting ready to go do ministry down in Arizona. The Lord is calling them there. I have no doubt what I've talked through with them. God's going to do some fruitful ministry there. He's going to get glory through their work and their life and their ministry and their raising of their children there in a way that wasn't going to happen here. And according to his perfect plan, that's what he does. To follow Jesus wherever he goes necessarily means people like the Waynes and people like us, we may not, have, may not stay right where we are. We need to be willing to give up the familiar to follow him. So many of us want everything to be mapped out for us. Before we take the first steps, hey, Jesus, I'll be happy to go with you. Just uh, send the itinerary over. I'll scrub through it before we leave. No, 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 no. Because God doesn't call us to follow a plan. He doesn't call us to follow an itinerary. He calls us to follow a person, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're to do. Follow him. Let's pray. Father, we love and praise you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his coming. Thank you for the example even of earlier disciples and disciple makers. Help us to be like them, but mostly to be like Jesus. Help us to follow him truly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.